Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode of Five Games for Doomsday is brought to you by Shuffled Inc., a family-run custom playing card company, providing affordable solutions for your game designs. Find out more at ShuffledInc.com. Out of the street corners they scream. You knew it was coming. You've been waiting for this for months. Rumour hardened into fear and now they scream at you. The sirens, their hysterical wail tearing through the white noise of the city. And you run. You run to pick up those things that can never be replaced. A picture of them in the days when they still loved you. Your mother's wedding ring. And then you turn to your shelf of games. You only have room for five. Five Games for Doomsday Five Games for Doomsday is a show in which board game personalities are thrust into a cabin in the woods to outrun an oncoming disaster, but can only take five of their games with them. But which will they choose? My guest this week is a writer, philosopher and most importantly gamer. A former food critic for the LA Times, he left culinary musings for more cerebral nourishment. Entering the world of philosophy, he's now a professor at the University of Utah. He also specialises in the study of rationality and agency and the gamification of society. His book, Games, Agency as Art, was awarded the American Philosophical Association's 2021 Book Prize. My guest this week is C.T. Nguyen. T, welcome to the cabin. Thank you. It's nice to be in this gloomy yet strangely gothically beautiful cabin. It's one of all I I I use I use blood to stain the wood, so that's what gives it the, uh, the look and the smell. And the smell, nice smell. <laughs> so, so to begin then, how difficult was it for you to choose the uh, five games to take to the cabin? Uh in some sense incredibly painfully difficult if this was a process I had to uh start afresh from um, the beginning, but I've already done this process, especially since I teach game design stuff now. I've constantly had to be like, what's the one game? I mean, there's the what... Your question is, what games would you take to the cabin? My actual real-world question often is, like, I have a short chance to teach real-world game designers who are going to, like, make the next Halo, what are the five games I'm going to expose them to in my class? So I've already been figuring this out. And so so what was the criteria then? Was it this? Was it was it a sense that these games were kind of important touchstones? Or was there, was there any sort of sentimentality in your choice? Oh, I mean, there... These games... I mean, some of it is about touchstones. 
I have low sentimental attachment to things. I think I think this is actually what helped me be a food critic. Like I don't have a strong sense of nostalgia. I just <laughs> have an intense sense of the things I think are extremely good. And so the five games here are kind of like my sense of five games that are good and extraordinary in different ways and are representative of the ways in which games can be very differently extraordinary right now. And, and so do you think nostalgia can be something of a something of a, a trickster in the sense that when I when I think about the games that I first played, when I first discovered this hobby, they hold such a sort of monumental place in my psyche, even if I haven't played them for, for ten years. Do you do you think nostalgia can get in the way of our critical faculties? I mean, you're asking a philosopher about the nature of objectivity and subjectivity, <laughs> man. Uh you know, Hume had a really interesting take on this. He thought that what made you a really good critic um, and a really good judge in some objective sense was the ability to see what your biases were and kind of see past them and know when they're operating and get around them, which is not – I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? It's not like It's not like I think – you should not enjoy things nostalgically. But I do think if you're writing as a critic, if you're making recommendations about, I don't know, what should be canonized or taught, you should be able to see what is the particular and personal and peculiar just to your relationship to things and what might be a little more universal. I mean, back in my food days, I was also a rock climber. And one rule I had was never review a restaurant just based on visiting it after rock climbing, right? Because I was so hungry that everything tasted amazing. And it wasn't that it wasn't amazing. It was just, it's not a good basis for a review. And so I, I've been trying to pass this question my, myself for a long time. What what is the difference between critique and review? Is there a difference? Do they have a different? Do they have a different goal? Right, to- they have incredibly different goals. So, a review is a recommendation process to tell people what they should go see. A critique or a criticism for me is trying to understand how the thing works or what it means or expose something deeper, right? Like, I think a, like wh- one of the primary things that people are looking for, reviews are a bit narrower. Uh, one of the primary things people are looking for reviews is, should I buy it? Should I go to it? Where I think a lot of the times, I mean, I will write criticisms of things that I think people are very unlikely to play, but I think it's <laughs> important to understand. Or they think most, and it'll say like, look, most of you will probably hate this but i think you should understand it are they mutually exclusive or or can a review be a piece of critique yeah no i think they're they they flow into each other but there's they're different you can think of different purposes like i i think if i'm writing a critique and in i don't actually care in the end if the person reading it clearly knows whether they should go buy it or see it or not where the review the review is a more narrow format. The people who come away from the review without a sense of your basic stance of recommendingness are probably going to be disappointed. So let's go back to the beginning then. So so when did games enter your life? I uh I've been playing games for my entire life. Um the first game that I felt had really intense feelings about and really deep ones was Go. Uh, you know, 
Most of you probably know Go, but if you don't, Go is like the chess of the East or whatever. It's an incredibly deep, rich game. I started studying it when I was 12, and if I could only it play It scares one the life out of me, if I'm honest. Really? Why? I just, these, well, I, I'm, I'm not particularly bright, and so these, these <laughs> sort of, these, these games that are just massive edifices that have, you know, echoes through history just scare the life out of me, and so I haven't experienced Go yet. It is... So profound and so deep, and if I could only play one game for my life, it would be Go. And yet, um, it's not on your list. Why is that? Because no, everyone knows about it. I mean, th- th- this is this is the other this is the other thing, right? Like, um, part of the function of a of a list like this, the real function is to get things known. And I mean, this is like it's as boring as if someone was like, "Okay, name your favorite pieces of music." And if you actually asked me to name my favorite pieces of music, it would be so boring. It would be like, <laughs> "Okay, Beethoven's Fifth, you know, Miles Davis." Like, you know, it's right. Uh, part of what we're trying to do is expand the 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 list that people know about. Anyway, so Go is one of my first. I also have been video gaming long enough that my first console was an Atari 2600, which uh, I recently had the heartbreaking of experience of seeing one behind glass at a kid's technology museum as a piece of, <laughs> as the beginning of ancient history of video games. That was really heartbreaking. Um, I had a, I, I spent a lot of time uh, playing computer games and video games in my youth. I do so much less now, mostly because of uh, time constraints and uh, somewhere in graduate school for me, which is in the early aughts, uh, I discovered the current explosion of Euro games and became completely obsessed with touring and developing connoisseurship and enjoying the hell out of like all the games pouring out of that scene. And and what is it? Because I because I sort of got into gaming around 2012, and then over the past sort of five years, I've been going back and playing Armin Ray. Yeah. And oh my god! Good, such good playing game. sort of old Klaus Teuber games and things Great. like this, and rediscovering those sort of, for want of a better term, purer sort of Euro games. What is it about those games? Yeah, I mean, I think you get these things where. There are these moments where some possibility gets cracked open, and just at the right moment, in those first like ten or twenty years, you just get this explosion of. Vi- I mean, I think about like the jazz scene in the you know forties, fifties, and sixties in like New York. It's just who knows why, but there's this mix of people, and it, it just like I see, I see right now. I tend to see games that are. Uh, that borrow and remix a lot of those mechanics and elaborate them. But in those first moments, it felt like a lot of these mechanics were new and they just had some of their most perfect opening statements early on. I don't know. Like that period is so rich and incredibly deep, incredibly easy to learn games. I think there's some, there's something about the, the way that um, that era of Euro gaming tried to, match the complexity of a lot of more niche hobbyist games while meeting the ma- the demands of being um, demands of being uh, more usable to a family and more balanced to a family that I think just spurred people to this extraordinary innovation. I mean, there's still great games coming out right now, but there's something about that early age, like 
Wolfgang Kramer, Reiner Knitia, those people at that time were those early games are just so golden and perfect. So, so I, I don't want to, I don't want to sort of trip you up or anything, but would you say that you're indulging in a, in a, in a bit of nostalgia there? <laughs> if I, it was actually nostalgic, I would play the games I grew up with. I don't play those games. I grew up with Monopoly and Trouble and Millborn and most of those things have faded by now. And so when did you first pick up the pen? When when did you decide to become a writer? Um, a writer about games or a writer a, in general? A writer in general. <laughs> like when I was 10. <laughs> I think, though, the first, like, 10 or 15 years of it, I thought I was going to be a fiction writer. I was going to write, like, the next – like, I was obsessed with being a science fiction writer or a literary writer or something like that. Uh, I think my first professional writing job, I um, – I was a movie critic as a teenager. Uh, the San Jose Mercury News, I grew up in San Jose, and the San Jose Mercury News had this contest to pick two or three teenage movie reviewers to write their teenage movie column, and they had a writing contest. And I think they were hoping for, you know, like, teenagers with average teenage taste. And because they I, they had this writing contest, and I think all three of the winners were the most pretentious fucks <laughs> with the most, like, ah, I'm an artiste, like, arty... To, I like I was like recommending like Altman and Kieślowski and stuff as like a 17 year old it was ridiculous Truffaut is far too commercial for my tastes <laughs> exactly and and so I'm I, I'm always interested to to speak to writers because I kind of consider myself one and writing for me is often often torturous I'm 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 I'm, the, I'm a kind of product writer in that I enjoy the end product far more than the process of getting to the end product were you were you a natural did you just was the tyranny of the empty page something you were never affected with? uh writing has always been easy for me it has always been the most pleasant thing I do I think it's funny most philosophers uh love other parts of the job and hate the writing for me mm. There's no pleasure greater and more intense than an idea and a blank page and time to just go. Um, and I write easily and happily, and I turn out garbage. My first drafts are total <laughs> shit. And like they're products of pure, frenzied, caffeinated joy. And then I have to spend like months turning them from garbage to something decent. That part hurts. But the actual blank page is like an ecstasy beyond all ecstasies. I'm 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 astonished whenever I sit down to write because I I write in an old fashioned manner by right. writing by hand first because I can't type as quick as my brain goes yeah. and I'm 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 astonished at how poor some of the sentences are that I put down <laughs> in that first draft. <laughs> it, it, I mean, but I think one of these things. Have you ever read Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird? I haven't. It it changed my life. It was it's kind of a therapy manual disguised as a writing manual but a lot of that she has this piece that i have my students read called shitty first drafts hmm. and it really is the way you get over writer block writer's block is just accept that the first draft is going to be terrible hmm. and you're going to work away at it and like once you make that acceptance and you're just like i just need to vomit stuff onto the page then it's fun and easy so your first game then is is one of my favorite games and it's a it's a classic and this is modern art. Oh my god. So, it's so good. I, I interviewed Rainer Knizia and I and I have this theory that Rainer Knizia is sort of unknowingly probably the greatest 
uh, most astute reader of human psychology in the world and I asked him do you do you think about the player's motivations when you design a game and he said no I just designed the best game but do you think that Kinesia has this sort of almost superhuman handle on what motivates people 100% and he's being to- his answer to you is totally self-effacing and deceitful because he's on record saying the opposite and there's no way you can play his games and believe that he doesn't think about human motivations. So um, I, we're skipping ahead a, a little bit, but the entire, my entire like seven years of working in philosophy in the philosophy of games is inspired by one sentence that Reiner Knizia had in one of his interviews. Uh, or it, it was actually a talk at a game developer conference. And he said, the most important part of my game design toolbox is the point system because the point system specifies the player's motivations. It tells them what to desire in the game. So this, I mean, this is, first of all, totally obvious if you play board games in some sense, right? You open the game and it tells you whether you want to collect, I don't know, gold or sheep or whether you're cooperating with people or you want whether you want to steal from them or kill them, right? It's, it's that it's first also, question people always ask, right? How do I win? Yeah, how do I win? Um, and I think like the the it's so interesting that Knitia says this because he has some of the most interesting point structures out there that really carefully manipulate what you care about. I mean, they're all think about all the games Knitia has where uh, you aren't trying to collect the most overall, but you're trying to collect in like four or five categories, and then you're scored on whatever category you have the least in, right? like the Tigris and Euphrates. Uh, he, he's used this over and over again. But that completely... So you can see there are games that are similar to the ones he's made. And making that scoring system makes you hypersensitized to thinking about um, what your weaknesses are and trying to figure out other people's weaknesses, right? So it, it changes the center not to thinking about your strengths, but to thinking about your weaknesses and defending your weaknesses and being... I think like a wide investment portfolio, right? Like Gitya knows what he's doing when he's playing around. I mean, this is the person that also invented cooperative games, right? Like where he sets a completely different motivational system for you. I mean, cooperative board games. So the idea that he doesn't think about human motivations is nuts. I mean, the maybe he's not thinking about people's motivations for coming into the game, but what he surely is doing is carefully thinking about the ver- about what your motivation is during the game and what your goals are, because he has some of the most finely tuned specifications of what you should be doing in the game. And I think some of his designs very slightly change your goals in ways that completely make the game sing. So he has to be thinking about that. So I heard modern art talked about a lot when I first got into gaming. It took me years to play it. And then then when I played it, I just went, oh, I see why people are talking about this now. Where does the joy in modern art come from? Right. Um, So modern art, for the people that don't know, is this really fascinating – I mean, thematically, it's very cynical. You're playing uh, different art dealers and – 
you're playing different art dealers and you're trading art to each other. And at the end of each round, you make money by selling the art that you bought that round to some generic audience out there where the audience, what they're willing to pay for it just depends on how many of them have traded that round. So it's kind of cynical. What's interesting is, first of all, Everything that's going on is completely emergent from various players' decisions in the game. You get to choose what to put up for auction, and you get to choose the kind of auction it is, and each of the auctions creates a subtly different dynamic. And what you're really trying to do is... So I think people that don't really love modern art think that it's a simple optimization task where you're just trying to get the best deal each time. What modern art actually is about is controlling the arc of the whole game to like trigger the run, to get the moment where... like. Everyone thinks, you know, this artist, whatever, Walter Dieter, I can't remember what the names are, is the most valuable, and you've got more of them. And so you have to, like, carefully manipulate what everyone thinks is going on in the market and what everyone thinks will happen in the market. And it has this this mechanic that I, I, I've never seen anyone use this mechanic as well. Um, it's kind of hard to describe because it's very abstract, but the mechanic is basically... So there are, I think, five artists each round, and the only ones that make money are the top three scorers. And then in each next round, artists are worth more if they've scored previous rounds, Hmm. but only if they're on the board, only if they're in the top three. So it creates these cliffs, right, where you – it creates these cliffs where some artists you have – might be worth an enormous amount of money if everybody thinks they're going to be in the top three because they have all this background, uh, because they have all these uh, background pass scores. But if no one thinks they're going to be top three this round, they're going to be totally worthless. And so you're trying to like manipulate people's conceptions of how the bidding in the round is going to go. To ch- I mean, it's wild and it's so emergent. And it's, it's all this emergent manipulation is happening from a rule book that is, I think... Three, my version, it's like three little pages long. Um, and for my design aesthetic, a lot of the times, I mean, I play a lot of modern games too, but a lot of more modern Euro games, the, okay, I'm going to sound like old get off my lawn fart right now, but a lot of them seem to create these very controlled environments where you're doing these me- mathematically complex um, calculations in, in this very mechanically complicated system, but there aren't that many deep, deep opportunities for creative choices and large-scale manipulation. And a lot of these early games, and my favorite examples are Knizia's Modern Art and Wolfgang Kramer's El Grande, are these relatively simple rule sets that create these incredibly vast landscapes of creative emergence and manipulation where you can try to you can try to like play people off each other or create like cascading investment opportunities and all of this comes out of these like really simple uh simple rule systems that create these like vast emergent interactions so i I was listening to you on a podcast and you 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 were talking about how now correct me uh, forgive me for crudely paraphrasing but 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 i got the impression you were you were talking about games not being treated as games, more as being critiqued with the criteria of other media, which don't really fit in to the criteria of game critique. And I, I a year ago, wrote this 25-minute essay about how um, modern art is this massive condemnation of the sort of vacuity of the art market. 
is that kind of criticism of a game like modern art valid or are we just endlessly gazing into our navels <laughs> i mean it's valid i also just don't think okay here's every time a new art form comes out historically people immediately try to treat it under the paradigm of a previous art form and they tend to respect the new ones insofar as they conform to older art standards. And they often tend to miss out on the real possibilities of the new medium. So historically, I think one of my favorite examples is what happens when photography comes out, right? So when photography comes out, people can't, like, they can't really cope with the clarity and the speed. And they tend to have this view that, like, photography is art when it looks like older paintings. So people would put Vaseline on the lens, scratch things up, try to make things fuzzy, and try to make things that really looks like older um, Renaissance or Impressionist paintings. And they didn't really uh, get into photography's capacity to capture a live moment. It took decades before people like Cardio Brisson started saying, like, no, what's really unique about photography is not that it can look like, you know, a Monet or Renoir, but that it can capture this unexpected live instant, right? It can do something different and new. And one of the things about games is, I'm not saying they don't have narrative or story or thematic elements. It's just that we're really, really, really good at talking about narrative and thematic elements because we've been trained exhaustively in English classes and literary analysis to do that kind of thing. And you can do that in games, but I'm... I'm not sure it always touches the heart of games. I mean, I do think some games are deeply narrative, and to understand what's going on, what's good about them, they're quite narrative. But I also think there are plenty of games where what's good is the emergent gameplay, the kinds of decisions. I mean, one of the reasons I I started doing the philosophy of games, which is, you know, barely a thing you're allowed to do in philosophy, is that... When I talked about games I loved with my friends and online on like Board Game Geek, we would talk about Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Interesting choices, like frictiony choices, fascinating choices. We talk about games in which there'd be these emergent moments where you could be creative. And then when I read the scholarship on games, it was all, what's the story? What's the narrative? What's the thematic meaning? And I kept thinking like, yeah, these things have narrative, but that's not, it's not the only thing. But we do, all of us have such training on finding narrative and thematic expressiveness. So, I mean, fine. Yeah, modern art is obviously a critique of the commodification of art, but I'm not sure that's what, why most people 
play it, right? right? And that, for me, that's not, I mean, it's, it's funny that it has this critique, but for me, what's magical about modern art, what makes it unique is the complexity and emergence and depth of the gameplay that emerges from those simple, simple rules and the capacity to support really creative long-term manipulation of a market, um, given, again, these really, really simple rules. Though I would be very surprised if most people, when playing it, when they put the piece of art on the easel, are not thinking of a shoulder-padded, ponytailed 80s douchebag, right? Right. That's that's the character I I inhabit when I play it. Let me me tell you, um, I think that's true, but I also think my experience was that's how I played the first and the second time. That's not how I play the hundredth time. And there's some really interesting research about this that says, like, a lot of the times, video game players, the first time they play through a game, like StarCraft II, the first time they play through it the second time, they're fairly involved with the fiction, they're thinking about the narrative. On their thousandth play, they're not. Like, pro StarCraft II players are not doing anything fictional. They are manipulating tiles that have certain mechanical properties in order to gain some kind of competitive advantage. And I think... It's it's really important for I mean I, a lot of the times I think about you know there are novelty chess sets that are this is kind of a cheap shot but you know they're Lord of the Rings chess sets and you could play chess imagining yourself into the place of like you know Sauron or Gandalf but I think what makes chess beautiful for really serious players has nothing to do with that and one of the things you do is you play chess more intensely is you just forget about all that stuff and you just look at the emergent tactical possibilities. I mean, this is really variable. So I think like that's what makes chess great. And that's what makes modern art great. On the other hand, if you're going to talk about tabletop role-playing games, you have to talk about narrative. That, <laughs> that's what they're about. Um, but I think the insistence on making every kind of great, respectable, arty game, something great about its like representational meaning is, I mean, that's that's not – I mean, there are people that try to talk about abstract expressionism and what it means. But I think a lot of the times what it is is this rich experience of color fields. And it's hard for us to talk about the meaning of that because it's wholly visual, because we're such a word-oriented, representation-oriented society. But, you know, I could tell you a story about what Miles Davis's records mean, but mostly they're just pure music. I think a lot of, like, a lot of these games are pure games and – Game designers are really good at talking about that, but the critics—I mean, sorry—critics in the in the natural game spaces, like Board Game Geek and and a lot of online spaces, I think, are really good at this. And then when you move move to the academics and the people trying to make games serious for like a larger, respectable audience, they always want to talk about the narrative, right? So I want to go on now and, and talk about your sort of previous life, and this is food writing. So, firstly, how does a person become a food critic? Um, I don't know what the normal path is. I can tell you my completely gonzo path. <laughs> Please, go ahead. Uh, there was an old website called Chowhound. Before Yelp, it was called Chowhound. Uh, it was just an old school text forum bulletin board where you talked about food. Uh, I was in LA and I started writing on it. Uh, I was in graduate school. And uh, I would often work really hard at philosophy all day and then go eat and then go home and get drunk and post on this thing drunk. Um and uh, I actually remember the post uh, that got the attention of the LA Times. Um, I was posting about this dish called uh, chicken and waffles. So if you don't know chicken and waffles, it's an American Southern dish. There's a really famous chain in LA called Roscoe's House of Chicken and Waffles. And it serves you like these 
soft, fluffy, big waffles, and then fried chicken and gravy with like maple syrup. And you wrap the chicken in the waffles or, and then you eat it together. And I just remember online reading someone saying something like, oh, this is bad because these are supposed to be Belgian waffles, but they're not crispy. They're soft. And so they're bad as waffles. And I was basically sitting in my room by myself, as one does, thinking, fuck you. You're wrong, <laughs> person on the internet. And I was about to write something. I was like, no, no, no. I need to do field testing. So I got drunker and I walked down to the nearest Roscoe's house of chicken and waffles. And I was eating it. And it's like crispy chicken and rich gravy and it's sweet and you wrap in this fluffy waffle. And I was like, you know what? This reminds me of something. And then I realized it was the same texture flavor pattern as picking duck, right? Like it has the steamed bun and then the crispy like duck and then the sweet like hoisin or plum sauce. And so I went home and wrote this like elaborate post about how, um, about how, they're, like Joseph Campbell and the form eternal forms of food and how there was this <laughs> convergent idea of balance and showed up in two totally different places. And I went to sleep and then I woke up to the phone ringing and it was the LA Times food editor. And he was like, you know, I've been enjoying your post for a while, but that last one last night put me over the top. Do you want a job? <laughs> so that's how I got that. And, and so we, I mean, you, you, you mentioned the, how do you transliterate music into words? How do you transliterate game mechanics into words? How do you transliterate taste into words and make it identifiable for the reader? Uh, I don't, it's hard practice. I don't know. Um, at least we have words for food stuff. I mean, actually one of my current obsessions is the transfer from food writing and text to mostly having food reviews happen on Instagram is really bad because Instagram doesn't convey taste and textures, but we have words for taste and textures. Um, I mean, I thought of it as this like narrative experience where you're trying to give people some idea of the emotional experience of being in that place. Um, and, and, um, and yeah, it, it was very visceral for me. I think a lot of people spend time writing when they write about food, about like the service and all that stuff. And I, I mostly wanted to give people an experience of what the food was like and in particular how to lo- – so um, I, was on a, I was on the cheap and ethnic beat. And so a lot, of the, a lot of my job was very, I think, educational. It would be something like looking for something and understanding the aesthetic that was often different from a standard like American aesthetic. I, I was reading to... your review of Stinky Tofu today. <laughs> Is that the one where I say that it's where I have the near pornographic line about how it's like the stinkiness of Natalie Portman's feet? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I wrote that. It got published. I don't think I get away with that today, but um, <laughs> I was walking down the hallway and one of my advisors just walked by me and was like, T, congratulations on getting the most pornographic thing I've ever seen written in a major newspaper. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I often think, I mean, food is very emotional and trying to convey the viscerality and emotionality of it is, is hard. You have to reach for all kinds of odd metaphors. One of the things that I found interesting when I was writing the games book is a lot of that book is philosophy, but a lot of that book is just trying to convince people who haven't played a lot of these games that they should. And I found it suddenly easy to write about games. And I realized it was like the old food writing muscles coming back because you're trying to describe like what it is to be caught in the midst of this intense emotional intellectual experience and to be like writing about the absorption in a fresh plate of noodles and writing about being absorbed in, uh, you know, like 
uh, Amon Ray is actually kind of similar. And so this, I mean, you, my next question, you can kind of tell my background and also my, my attitude to food, I guess. But um, so... I'll just kind of read what I've written. So we have no real control over what we like or we don't. And so it, so why then do you think that food is such an indicator of status and sophistication? And also, is the food world irretrievably snobby? I reject all your presuppositions. <laughs> um, first of all, I think food, I mean, we do have significant control. Um, and a lot of that control has to do with learning how to think about something. I mean, it's interesting. I've had a lot of cases where someone will eat something and they'll be like, oh, this is kind of boring. I'm like, oh, you know, for this kind of Cantonese noodle, the, it's, the flavor isn't what's really important. What you're supposed to what, – what it's intended to be mostly is a texture food and a texture food that cares not only how it feels in the mouth but how it feels in the throat. And people are trying it again and they're like, oh, wait, this is really cool. And so you can, you can give people um, – so, okay, I'll, let me give you a little philosophy background. Um, there's this paper I love from Kendall Walton called Categories of Art. And one of his views is that you can't really experience something properly unless you know something about the history and the background and other experiences of it. Like, for example, um, you would, you can't experience a lot of moments in a Western or a noir, uh, noir film without having some sense of the genre standards and once you have those genre standards, you'll have this immediate, different, often perceptual experience. So he's this great example of – so imagine a bust. You're going to picture a bust in your head, like someone's face and their chest, right? Like imagine the bust of Socrates. If you don't know the history of a bust, you might look at that and think, there's a picture, there's a statue of someone's head and chest that has been violently cut off the rest of their body. Right there is a statue of a battlefield terrible wound. No, like you have to know what a bust is. You have to know what the basics of that are in order to be able to parse what it is. Right, and I think a lot of the times ha- having some sense of the background or the history or where you're supposed to look actually will immediately change your perception. So this idea that we can't change our taste is. I think this weird lack of respect for the cognitivity of food. People all the time think, "Oh, we can change, um, we can change our beliefs about movies or film through talking," but we do, can do the same for food too. Like, but I mean, I think the the main thing is. So you have this. Pre- your question indicated the presumption that food is especially an indicator of status and sophistication. My view is that everything in culture is an indicator of status or sophistication. Bear right? in mind like, I'm British, so right. I'm riddled with with class insecurity. Yeah, I mean, you know, imagine if I'm giving a talk at a philosophy conference, the difference between if my bookshelf behind me is full of, like, Kant and Proust versus if my bookshelf behind me is full of, like, dime store westerns and harlequin romances, Right. All of that stuff is a sign of status and sophistication. I suspect when people say why food, what they mean is, well, food isn't really as valuable or important as other stuff. So what but I mean I think I think it's important, right? So we use we use everything as an indicator for status and sophistication, but that doesn't mean it's not real. Um, and I think like this is one of these cases where uh, where I mean, I think it's so easy 
to accuse areas that you're not into at all and don't get of just being a shell game of status and sophistication. I'm not saying that like... With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. There isn't snobbery in every realm. Like, there's bullshit and snobbery and elitism in every realm. But it's easy if you're not into jazz. I think it's just people, like, wanking off listening to, like, too many notes <laughs> until you get it. And it's so easy for, I mean, for the people, like, it's so easy for people to think, oh, you board game players are just, like, snobs looking for, like, the new, like, you could just play, like, Canasta and be fine. And if you're into it, you're like, oh, no, these things are interesting and cool and amazing. And also, a lot of the times, the things that are most interesting and amazing are not the things that have the highest indicator of status and sophistication. I think the same is true of food. Like, people who don't like it, it's easy to accuse obsessives of just being superficial status seekers. And there are definitely superficial status seekers out there. But I think, I mean... For some of us, it's real and deep and amazing. Sure, I mean it's not to it's not to disregard the the, the, the real sort of appreciation that people have, but I, I think you can draw a distinction between something like cinema and food in that food, through simple finance, prices people many many people out of the opportunity of experiencing what people consider the best, whereas cinema kind of doesn't because the tickets are. Ten pounds, right? Uh, on the one hand, I understand that, ma- like mass media, like movies and books, have an have an essential like democratic accessibility to them. To th- that things like I don't know, so food in particular, you can't go to a museum; you have to pay for it to but to experience it. But I also like. Where is this assumption that the best food is expensive? I think the best food in LA is that I've ever had. Well. Some of it is fairly expensive sushi, but some of the best food is like a dollar fifty taco out of a truck in the right part of town, right? Like I don't. I think food is actually one of the places where um, you can find the best stuff for uh, for almost nothing, right? Like a truly great pizza is not that expensive. A truly great. I mean the. F- the best, most amazing, life-stopping piece of sourdough. I mean, it was kind of expensive for bread. It was like $7 for a loaf of sourdough bread lovingly made by a bread expert. But that's 7 bucks. That's still less than the price of a movie. And it bent my mind apart, right? Like the best – one of the best things to eat in Salt Lake right now is this place where for like $7 you can get handmade northern Chinese noodles. Like I, the, the maybe, maybe the people that think – the only good food is expensive food and expensive restaurants are irretrievably snobby, but um, that that seems like a weird <laughs> take to have on 
Maybe is this is this about you being British? This is about me being. This is about me being working class and having a chip on my shoulder the size of <laughs> the size of Mont Blanc. That's that. That's what this is about. <laughs> so I want to move on now to your next game, and this is Root. So how does Cole Worley manage to make the asymmetry in this game? hang together because every faction is so wildly different and yet the game feels cohesive oh my god i i mean if you if i knew the answer to that that i mean i think your question is equivalent to like how does quentin tarantino make all these different moods and like weird timelines here i don't know he's a genius if i knew i would be that much of a genius too right like i mean the um uh, I, I've genuinely wondered that really deeply because, um, because right. Uh, one of the interesting things I think about Root compared to some of the games it comes from. So, uh, I'm sure that a lot of the listeners know Root. One of the one of the roots of Root is the coin games, the the war games of counterinsurgency. So I've, I mean, I played a bit of those. They're the enormous exhausting game. I mean, they take like forever to learn. The games take a really long time. And I think one of the services Cole Worley did for us is that when he gave us Root, he gave us a game that asymmetric, but short enough that you can rotate through the factions, right? I've never played a coin game more than twice. With Root, I mean, I played Root hundreds of times. I played each of the factions intensely. And one of the things that does make it coherent in deep play, I think, is that you know how the other factions work. And I think that's one of the most astonishing parts of Root, that it does work so well. When you it that it really demands that when you're playing one of these factions, like um, that you know what the other faction cares about. For example, um, so one of the factions, the Marquis de Cat, really depends on having this uh, this is the Marquis de Cat, I always say, is like the faction that plays the most like a traditional Euro game, you know, you're like making stuff to make factories, to buy stuff, to make factories. Like it's, it's a very like resource snowball game, but the weak point of the Marquise de Cats is you need a transportation network. So the first time I played the game, I was playing as one of the other factions. I think I was playing as the Woodland Alliance. I didn't understand this. I didn't know how to disrupt them. And it wasn't as until I played the Marquise de Cats a few times that I realized how much the Marquise de Cats is like nail biting about how vulnerable their transportation network is to move the resources around to build things because you can't build things unless you own all the intervening provinces to to move things through and how disruptable that is so once you've played the marquise de cats when you play any other faction you're like arrow focused on disrupting their transportation network so i mean the real i'm not answering your question i'm making it even more of an intense question (laughs) like how do you make this game where they interlock so deeply that once you play them a ton it just gets deeper that 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 each of the resources each of the factions has such interesting different abilities and affordances to disrupt the other fact the way the other factions work like i don't know you should, have you interviewed him yet i have yeah 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 i i don't think i asked him this question Hello? actually so um have you uh, uh, sorry have you can you hear me Cole? yeah i can hear you oh, yeah, yeah yeah i have i have interviewed him but i don't think i asked him this question I think I'm actually supposed to interview him someday. It's on it's on my books, and I'll ask him that question. That's that's kind of what I want to know. You know, him, uh, uh, one of my favorite bits of philosophy of art is uh, Volheim, who says 
he says every medium has its own recalcitrant, its own difficulty, and um, like the difficulty of oil painting is like how slow the medium is, and the difficulty of traditional cinema on film is actually getting the shot. And I think the difficulty in these games is designing systems that are emergent so the players have full freedom and yet interesting narratives come together. And so what Volheim says is there's no single answer to how you solve this recalcitrance. Every artwork is a different creative solution to the question posed by the medium of like, how do you get over its recalcitrance? And I think every game is an answer to the question, an attempt to answer the question, how do we make interesting actions emerge out of the player's own freedom? And the game that most astonishes me is Root, because he sets himself the task of like making a game emerge from totally different rule sets intersecting. I don't know. It's amazing. And so you, you've spoken about the, the obvious real-world analogs to the factions. You know, you've got the sort of the Marxist uprising. You've got the, the old sort of set-in-their-ways former power that is trapped by their tradition. I mean... What do you see the purpose of the the art and design of the game here to be? Is it is it purely a commercial decision? Is it is it something to help the medicine of these messages go down? I mean, why the cutesy animals and and why does it work? Yeah, I mean, I I do think I I think it's a little bit of sugar. I mean, the themes are so heavy and so intense that you might be bogged down to think a little too intellectually about it and uh i think the game is not only very intellectual but also very fun um and the the setting in the art style i think cue the fun side right for something like somebody like me without that i might be tempted to play it with like my ultra serious hat on but the game has a lot of like wildness and goofiness in it. Like one of the one of the, I think one of the things that Colwelly is really good at is games that create these like chaotically interesting wild situations. Um, my game group is playing his new game Oath, which has a similar thing, um, and I think it is a little bit role play in a certain way. Um, interestingly, this, this is looking forward a bit, but I I talked. Um, to Meg Baker of the Vincent Baker, Meg Baker design team for Apocalypse World. And she said, Root is like an Apocalypse World game. Each of the different things looks like one of the different playbooks, which I thought was super interesting. And I think the the when we play it, the art style definitely cues us to do slightly goofy accents, like the Marquise de Cats does a slightly goofy accent. And the the uh the whoever's playing the um the eerie tends to really double down on talking like a wild dogmatic frothing of the lips general <laughs> and i think that that it, it helps it helps cue the goofy side of the design in a way that i think makes the game i mean it makes it more pleasant and fun in between all this like really brilliant intellectual emergence have you ever wanted to design your own card game? Well, Shuffled Ink is here to help. As a leader in custom playing card manufacturing, Shuffled Ink is perfectly suited to bring your card game vision to life. 
Shoveled Ink is a family owned and operated business producing top quality products since 1999. Headquartered in Orlando, Florida, Shuffled Inc.'s professional quality custom card decks are printed in the USA. Not a game designer? Well, in addition to printing custom playing cards and card games, they produce tarot cards, flashcards, affirmation decks and oracle cards. With hundreds of customization options, the only limit to creating a custom card deck is your imagination. Shuffled Inc. is dedicated to providing first-class customer service, unbeatable pricing, low minimums, incredibly fast turnaround times, and much, much more. Whether you're looking to create promotional items for a corporate event, a card game, personalised wedding favours, or starting a passion project, their team can produce exactly what you want, when you want it, and in the format that you need. Shuffled Inc. makes creating a deck of cards simple. Anyone can do it. Get started by requesting a quote on their website today. Learn more at shuffledink.com. That's S-H-U-F-F-L-E-D-I-N-K dot com. And as a thank you to 5G for D listeners, you can get free shipping of up to $100 by simply entering the promo code DOOMSDAY at checkout. So go to shuffledink.com and get a unique set of custom playing cards today. And I'd like to thank them for helping to support this show. So, so when I think of when I think of Cole Worley, and I, I it's it, it's an interesting it's an interesting to put him up against. So he's a very modern. He feels like a very modern designer to me, whereas Knizia feels like a more traditional designer. And with the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To borrow a term from another form of art, I wouldn't think of Knizia as an auteur in the way I wouldn't think of Billy Wilder as an auteur, yet I would see Cole Worley as an auteur. Do you think that's true? And and sort of what is that distinction? Uh, I totally don't understand the distinction you're making. I can't see any artistic category that doesn't that has Worley in it, that doesn't also have Knizia in it. And I also don't see a category that has like, I don't know, um, that has like Tarantino in it that doesn't have Wilder. Mm. But I, I, I mean... Tell me what you mean by auteur. So I guess what I mean is, now, I, I can't, of course, I cannot enter into the mind state of the, the creator. But there feels to me with Cole Worley that he approaches the game from an intellectual side, whereas Knizia and Wilder, for that example, their goal is to make a great movie, make a great game. The, all of the other sort of, all, all the other sort of artistic ramifications come as a byproduct of that. Whereas Cole, it seems to me, approaches the game with, I want to say this. And it's that sort of craftsman artist distinction, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I think you are, I'm going to diagnose you. Please, your please, please go ahead. I think you are still suffering under the view that games are artier and more meaningful when they have clear narrative or representational content. Mm. So I think, I mean, I think 
the art. I, I think you are still. I, I think you, I actually think you misinterpret my value of the of the two things. But okay. please, please carry on. Right. No, but I mean, I but this is when you say the okay, when you say the distinction between the craftsman and the artist, right? I think. Traditionally, A, people respect the artist more, and they think that the craftsman is making something making something uh, so the the way that the philosophers of art make this distinction, the craftsman is trying to give you ex- has a clear specification of the thing that uh, of the function that the thing is supposed to make, and they're just trying to hit that specification in a predictable way, right They have a predictable goal where the artist is open to all kinds of different goals. I don't see why – I mean, first of all, I don't see why this why Billy Wilder isn't like this. But I certainly don't see why Knizia, who's not – isn't exploring the space of possibly deeply different, deeply rich experiences of play. Um, so I, I, I think Worley is more trying to build more intellectual representational content into it, but – this association with like that's the higher thing to do. I don't. I don't believe in. Like I, I think uh, see, like see, see, what makes you see you misinterpret me because I'm, okay. I'm very much. I'm very much as a creator myself and and of the the things that I appreciate. I'm very much a believer in the Canizia Billy Wilder side. That the primary goal should not to be create a message or create an intellectual work of art, but should be to create the thing as well as you can, and then have all the other people who swim around it tell me whether it's art or not right yes i'm agreeing with you. okay fantastic so i want to move on now and talk about uh, your book games as agency so could you give us a brief pre of the book right so the book is games agency as art um the idea is uh so there are two kind of major ideas the the kind of forefront idea is exactly what we've been talking about. That people have been trying to talk about games as respectable as an art if they become representational or if they tell stories. But I think the really unique thing about games is that they design action spaces, right? And they do so by manipulating our agency. So, uh, so I took Brenner Knizia's insight, right? That so people say things like game designers create worlds or game designers tell stories, and I think this is actually underselling the issue. Um, Reiner Knizia's point is that game designers create motivations for you. So I think the thing that the game designer is doing that's really unique is creating an alternate self for you, where they're specifying what that self wants through the desire set and what that self can do through the rules, creating abilities and affordances and constraints. So the, the TED Talk slogan is that the artistic medium of games is agency itself. Game designers are creating an alternate agency for you and then creating an environment and putting you into it to create kinds of harmony, like to create these wonderful experiences of acting, these experiences of being in a possible uh, in a space where the action is interesting or thick or rich or funny or elegant, like that. Norm. So, um, John Dewey, the philosopher John Dewey, John Dewey says, uh, "All the arts take some part of natural life and crystallize and concentrate what's beautiful in it." So, and I think like fiction often takes our everyday act of telling narratives and stories about what happened and crystallizes the beauty of it. Painting does that to vision. And I think games do that with action, right? They take the, the moments I get to feel elegant in my, uh, my mind gets to feel elegant and my body gets to feel elegant in my actual workaday life, like once a month. 
but games create conditions where you get to have like logical epiphanies or you get to have subtle movements uh, that are beautiful. And they do that by carefully manipulating your agential role and the environment you're in. So that's like, that's the big kind of like overarching claim of the book. And the most important thing under the hood for me is a theory about our motivational structure in games. So here I'm using a, a, a great philosopher, Bernard Suits, who wrote The Grasshopper, Games Utopian Life, which is the best work uh, of, uh, on philosophy of games. It was written in the 70s. Kind of lost for a while, but it's been revived as a cult classic. And Suits's definition of what a game is, is that playing a game is voluntarily taking on unnecessary obstacles in order to create the activity of struggling to overcome them. I think this is extraordinarily deep definition. And part of the core of that definition is that what you're trying to do in a game, the value of what you're trying to do is not the simple end state that you're trying to reach in that game, but it's the end state as reached under a specific set of constraints. So the philosophy way of putting this is that games are constraint constituted, have, sorry, games have constraint constituted goals. So what I mean is like, okay, the point of getting to the end of a marathon is not to be at that point in space, because you could do that more easily. You could take a taxi, you could take a lift, you could take a bicycle, right? The point is to do it by a certain route, route using only your legs. So that means that the goal of the game doesn't really matter or count unless you did it under those constraints. So what's valuable has to be the activity that's formulated by those constraints. So this leads me in the book to say, look, there are two different major motivations you could take while playing a game. One is achievement play. Achievement play is playing for the value of winning at the game. You actually care about winning. But what's really interesting to me is striving play. So striving play for me is a case where you take on an interest in winning for the sake of the experience of the struggle. And part of the way you can tell a striving player is they don't actually care about winning cosmically. They just really intensely try to win during the game to get that valuable struggle. But outside of the game, they don't actually care about whether they win. Um, so I have a few. Sorry, I, I, this uh, this is just my feel. Let me let me just. So the there are two basic ways you can tell uh, basic arguments that striving play is real. So here's one: uh, my wife and I play a lot of board games. And a lot of the times she's better at some, she's much more geometric. I'm much more socially manipulative. A lot of games she's much better at. So like a lot of games I'm much better at. But once in a while we find a game where our skills are balanced and the struggle is perfect. And then I find a strategy guide on board game. <laughs> and I know she'll never read it. Right. And you see where this is going, right? And I know if I read it, I'll win. And if I'm an achievement player, I should just read it. Right. But I know if I read it, the game will turn boring, and so I don't fucking read the strategy guide. And it's just not cricket to read the strategy guide, right? <laughs> I think, actually, I mean, the, that's a complicated question. I think in some cases it might be, but in this case it's... I mean, I think the reason it's not cricket is because we know in this case what the fun is is this delicious struggle. And this would just wreck it for something that's actually to both of us, kind of meaningless, like whether or not we actually win. Um, let me give you one more. So here's the last argument that the striving play is real. I think there's a category that I give the technical game, sorry, the technical name of stupid games. And a stupid game is a game where the fun part is failing, but it's only fun if you're actually trying to win. So examples include a lot of drinking games, Twister, the children's game of telephone, 
right? So Twister is funny when everyone falls over. That's actually what you want. You want to fall over funnily. But if you actually fall over intentionally, it's not funny because what's funny is failure. And it's only funny if you're actually trying. So you have to be in this weird state when you play Twister. You have to know that what you actually want is to fall in failure. But in order to achieve it, you have to try to win, even though you don't actually care about winning. You actually want to fail, right? So we're striving players, a lot of us. And I think the most important form of striving play for a lot of us is aesthetic striving play. We take on an interest in winning because the struggle is beautiful. We don't actually care if we're winning. We just care that we take on a temporary interest in winning in order to experience the absorbed beauty of play. So, you know, you're someone who seeks to sort of put the experience of play into words. And we, we've spoken about this throughout this interview, that, that it, 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 it's difficult in the way that, you know, it's difficult to write about music and it's difficult to write about the experience of games. How divorced is your role as game commentator from your role as gamer? Or do they, do they interact with each other a lot? They're, I mean, they're deeply interactive. Like, my role as a game commentator, especially since I'm not... I'm not as interested in extracting the narrative meaning, but describing the experience of play. My role as a game commentator, I think, is basically to talk about the experience of play and to like get at its experiential guts. And one of the things I've been trying to do is, I think one of the reasons people talk more about narrative and not as much about this experience of being caught in the moment of trying to do the action, especially in more formal academic and cultural work, is that we have much better language for talking about narrative, and we have much less well-developed language for talking about the relationship between rules and rich, beautiful action. So in the book, part of what I thought I was doing was trying to create some language. I was basically like, I mean, I don't think these ideas are like, in some sense, mine. What I think, what I thought I was doing was reading, I read a lot of academic work, and I thought that missed the point. And then I read a lot of Game criticism, unlike Board Game Geek, and a lot of game designer diaries, right? I love game designer diaries. That's where I think the most interesting stuff is. And it was clear to me that they were on about what was really important, but they're struggling for the language because we don't have such a good language. So I was like, okay, I'm a philosopher. I do philosophy of art. I'm going to make the language or help like refine the language and give you like... And I think some of the best feedback I've gotten the feedback I care about is game players have written to me to say for the first time they can describe clearly to other people after reading my book, why they love games and what it means to them. And I've had a bunch of game designers write me and say, for the first time they have the language to talk about clearly what they care about and to articulate what they're going for. And, And some game designers told me that they actually had been trying more and more to make their games good as narratives or fictions because they're convinced by that stuff. And the language I gave them in the book helped them recenter and refocus on what they cared about, which is interesting emergent play. I mean, again, this is not to say narrative games are bad or story games are bad or you, you or that there's it's just to say that we we have, especially as people are trying to take games more seriously, we tend to deflect them in the direction of narrative and representation. And I think part of it is because we have less aesthetic language for the aesthetic richness of play. So I tried to make some. So your next game then is is, is an unusual game, though, though, though incredibly satisfying. And this is The Quiet Year. Why is this game interesting? 
Oh my god. <laughs> so good. So um uh, I should preface this by saying um uh as part so in this I'm teaching in the University of Utah's game design program, hmm. which is a computer game design program. Um I'm teaching with Jose Zagal. So Jose Zagal is a game designer who is a faculty member in that program, and we wrote a paper together. So we started teaching this class together. It's a game design class. It's aimed at game designers, and it's theory and then designing things in response to theory, but it's also a lot of play. And I think a lot of our students are aimed at fairly like mainstream games, like they want to make things like you know, Halo or whatever. I, I would say like 20 or 30% of the students have experience with like weird indie arty games and so part of our goal was just to like show them the possibility in the game space and like all the richness and weirdness of games and we made them play some games in between designing games i picked the quiet year as like the most important thing for them to play jose zagal picked the mind which was an incredibly interesting pick that we can talk about later um and my students like they they talked about that game so much, and so many of them afterwards said the most important thing in that class was playing The Quiet Year and seeing what a game could be. So The Quiet Year is from the indie role-playing world, which is, by the way, for me right now, as a watcher of like the artistic development of games, the world that's most exciting to me right now is the indie tabletop role playing world like the way that the euro game the euro gaming world felt like in the nineties that's how tabletop role playing looks right now like every year I play new games I'm like, holy shit, you did <laughs> what with your design? oh my god um, anyway, so the quiet year is a map making game um, it's a collective storytelling map making game you're playing in the apocalypse guiding a village for one year. Um, and you play as both – you kind of alternate between playing the kind of gods or forces that create problems and, like, offer opportunities for the villagers. And you also smoothly step into the roles of the villagers. And you kind of evolve the story together. And it has all these, like the – the text prompts are really interesting. Um, they, they're ones that are, like – an orphan, like you can draw a card that says like an orphan comes to town. Either they represent a new opportunity or a prevailing danger. Tell, tell us what it is, you know, and it's, the situation is very evocative and you tell these, like you end up typically telling these like really rich, weird stories. And the game is, the game designer says it's explicitly made to model the difficulty of communication. So there's all these interesting things where a lot of the times you have to, the game tells you you're supposed to do the action, and even though the game is the development is your collective responsibility, you have to you have to decide on the action one sidedly. You can't consult other people about what you're supposed to do. Though there's one move in the game where you're allowed to consult other people, but in this really restricted way, you get to like ask a question like, "What should we, the villagers, do about these werewolves on our periphery?" And everyone gets to make one single statement uh, in response and you don't discuss further and you don't resolve. And this is supposed to say the designers capture like the difficulty and the lack of revolution in real world communities. And then there's this other mechanic that I love um, where there's this thing in the game called contempt. And if there are tokens for it, and if, if the game says, whenever someone else does something that, um, you feel doesn't respect your interests or makes you feel not heard, you simply take a contempt token and place it in front of you. 
And my favorite thing in the game is the contempt tokens don't have any mechanical purpose in the game. You can't trade them in. They give you no powers. They just mount up. I think if someone does something that you can, you feel really honors you, you can like put a contempt token away. But mostly what it, what happens in the game is contempt just quietly mounts up in front of other people. And the experience of doing something and having everybody else just take a contempt token and put in front of them just so sets the mood of the game. Um, I actually asked my my design student. I was like, okay, so what would have happened if we'd made the contempt tokens like worth something? Like you could trade them in for an extra turn. And the students were all like, no, that would ruin the game completely. <laughs> and it's so true. Like the contempt tokens, they kind of tell you what the game is about, right? Like it's not a game of optim. It's like this game of like mood and narrative and, <laughs> and you know, fomenting grudges and holding them <laughs> quietly. Understanding how much other people annoy you. So, so I want to I want to talk now more broadly about the subject of philosophy, um, because a few years ago I can't remember how long, but Stephen Hawking published a book in which he said philosophy no longer has a purpose; science has superseded it. So, so what <laughs> what is the purpose of philosophy? Oh my god! You asked me a question like, "What is the purpose of games?" I don't think there's a singular answer to this. I can tell you what philosophers philosophers have a long set of tools. I mean, what philosophers are good at doing is analyzing concepts and finding connections between conceptual structures. Um, And I think like, I mean, the idea that science is, the idea that science has um, made philosophy uh, obsolete it's to me ludicrous because among other things, I think one of the things science can't give you answers to is what you should value in the world and how you should treat other people. These are normative questions. They're not measurable questions. And by the way, scientists who claim that they can tell you what this is often start by giving what looks to me incredibly bad philosophy like well obviously the purpose of life is maximizing pleasure and we can just measure that and you're like oh no, 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 no. why do you think that's the purpose of life and you're like, it's obvious and you're like that you've just made a philosophic way so um so so yeah i mean i i i'm not sh- i mean when i a lot of the work i've done has been about clarifying the relationships between concepts for people in a way that they find hopefully find useful um, and finding connections, connections between things that make things seem kind of like ethically or value clear. And I, I think that's what we do. And, and to what extent do you think, because, because when, when you say the word philosophy, a, a picture is created in many people's minds of the ivory tower and, and, you know, people sitting around stroking their beards, having very worthy conversations and it not really having a direct impact on normal people in their normal lives. I mean, to, to what degree can philosophy help increase the good in the world? Right. I mean, I, I do think there's a lot of bullshit philosophy that doesn't do anything, but there's a lot of really valuable philosophy. Um, Stuff that helps. So I was just teaching a bit of philosophy in my class today, and I had several students write to me saying it helped transform their lives and understand what was going on. So I was teaching Miranda Fricker, who has this book called Testimonial Injustice. And she she's talking about different kinds of bias. And one of the kinds of bias she talks about is the bias where because of um, 
because of something like your race or your gender, uh, people don't trust you as much. So that's the first part of the book. And the second part of the book is this really interesting concept called hermeneutical injustice. And she, her argument is basically that um, certain groups of people have, in our language and culture, more access to concepts that better fit their experience of the world. And some people have less access because of who's gotten to create the concepts. I mean, here's one way to put it. If you are a wealthy, horny, white dude in New York who's having trouble dating, it is so easy to describe your experience because there have been so many books <laughs> and so many movies expressing that experience. If you're, on the other hand, something else, somebody more distant from that, there's much less literature. There's much less poetry that's been written that has that in general the world has access to that helps you to describe your experience. So Miranda Fricker talked about how she, she's, she has this long case study about um, the creation of the term sexual harassment. And how before we had that term, by the way, that term was invented in the 60s. People who experienced it couldn't really talk about it and had trouble thinking about it and often felt it by self-destructing kind of crazy. And the act of creating that term made it easier to talk and feel justified and feel sane and make yourself understood to other people. And so the idea is, the ability to create and disseminate concepts describing your experience is a social resource that people have differential access to. So this is a familiar idea in philosophy. When I teach this stuff in intro, people light up. People say that this like immediately helps them understand experiences in their life, that they've been subject to hermeneutical injustice too, that it helps them feel less great. Right. Stuff like that. And so when I was younger, I I sort of went through this phase. I, I I read sort of some philosophy, and then I went through this phase of thinking, who are these people in the universities who write books? Why everybody does it? My view on what makes the good life should have as much respect as Plato's. I mean, is philosophizing something inherent to the human animal? Do you think? And and do you think the rumination is kind of the point? Yeah, I mean, a few things to say. One, um, uh, I was once taught a response uh, to a common airplane question by a novelist. The novelist said that they often were on airplanes and someone would say something like, oh, I'm a cardiac surgeon in retirement. I'm thinking of you know, writing novels. Do you have any tips? And the novelist would say, yeah, sure, but uh, I, I have some tips, but also I'm thinking in my retirement of becoming a cardiac surgeon. Do you have any tips? Um, and I think on the one hand, it's something that everyone does. On the other hand, it's something weird. There's something, there's a weird prejudice in thinking that you can't get deeper into a topic by specializing in it. Um and that, I mean, a lot of, I think, the way you specialize, in my case, is really smart people have been doing this for a really long time, and you just get to read what they've thought. And there's a lot there. Um, anyway, so, sorry. Uh, is it a natural thing? So, I actually have a view that a lot of the things that we do... Okay, let me back up for a second. Um, some things we do... So, this is from Bernard Suits. He says, some things we do are product oriented we do it because of what comes out of the uh, what comes at the other end right like what we get out of it the money the stuff there's some stuff we do that you might call process oriented we do it because the activity itself is valuable so there's a term for this in philosophy it's an aristotelian idea some activities are autotelic 
they're worth doing in and of themselves. You don't do it for the sake of the outcome. You do it because the doing itself is valuable. This is a fancy philosophical way of saying sometimes the journey is the destination. And Suits, I think, thought games were the best example of autotelic activity. He actually has this funky argument at the end of his book where he says, imagine Utopia. What would we do in Utopia if we'd solved all our technical problems? We'd play games or be bored out of our minds. So if games are what we do in Utopia, they must be the purpose of life. Which is another way to put an old Aristotelian argument that it, if it's really some stuff helps you to have autotelic doings, helps you do rich activity. But if what's really valuable is rich activity, then right, what is more could be more valuable than the activity you choose for its own sake, and that's games. Games are the place where you choose the struggle, not for what they get you, but for the struggle itself, right? Um, so. Uh, so I actually kind of think that a lot of stuff we do is more like a game. And I kind of think that art appreciation is more like a game. The point isn't to get things right. I have a paper about this. The point isn't to get things right, but the point is the fun in disagreement. I think we kind of have evolved the art appreciation game so we can joyfully argue about like the top 10 Nicolas Cage movies or whatever we want to argue about. Um, and I'm not sure all philosophy is like this, but I suspect that a lot of philosophy is there because of the value of the activity itself. I mean, this is what Aristotle thought. He thought the point of human life was to be engaged in contemplation. And I think Suits would just add, and one of the deepest kinds of contemplation is playing chess or playing Portal. So your next game then is Apocalypse World. Why is this the RPG system you've chosen to take to the cabin? <laughs> oh my God, Apocalypse World. I mean, the... The quickest answer is I, I. It's the one I play the most, and Apocalypse World or various hacks. I, I, I just think it's it's the best system I've seen for encouraging player creativity and narrative, and I think that's deeply arising from the way the mechanics and the point system structure how you go and i mean to be a philosophy asshole the metaphysics of the game hmm. have you played apocalypse world i haven't played apocalypse world i'm afraid no okay so two deep things so one sorry two two quick things so one in the indie role playing space have you played much role playing do you do, do, um, do you know, or, um a lot of dnd call of cthulhu and okay. some indie stuff 10 candles things like that okay awesome that, that helps so um so a lot of the indie role-playing world, I think, poured off of this forum that was run for a while called The Forge, and a lot of articles written by a bunch of them, most particularly a game designer came, well, called Ron Edwards. And Ron Edwards was really interested in how he thought Dungeons & Dragons, the incentive and the mechanics, pushed you pushed some people away from the kind of experience they wanted to have. I mean, one way he would put it is like, you know, we, a lot of us wanted like these exciting, epic, emotional narratives and Dungeons and Dragons pushes us towards narratives of killing and shopping. And it's really amazing once he pointed out, he's like, how little mechanics there are, especially in old school Dungeons and Dragons for politics and how much there is for killing and looting bodies and buying shit to kill more, right? So, 
Um, a lot of these indie systems are really interested in point systems that incentivize the players to make narratives. One of my very favorites is John Harper is one of the greats in this world. Um, and John Harper has, so Lady Blackbird's a great example of this. This is a free indie RPG that um, he has on his website. It's like a half a page rule set. And the rule is, um, God, sorry, I, this, the, this rule is drawn from an earlier RPG from, I think, Clinton Nixon? Anyway, so um, the the rule is, uh, so you have this pool of something called bonus die. And whenever you need to make rolls, you can draw from your pool and add bonus die, making it more likely you'll make the roll. But you start with only seven bonus die, and you use them up and they dwindle. So how do you get them back? The rule in Lady Blackbird is you get them back for having a refreshment scene, where a refreshment scene is you and another player character have to have an encounter that reveals shared backstory. So the way the game works is you get tired and the game incentivizes you to make up backstory. And then my favorite wrinkle on this is uh, you can have your refreshment scene as a flashback, which leads to all these amazing moments where you're in some like tense situation. You're out of, you know, your dice pool, and so your two two of the characters like lock eyes and have the flashback to how they met or whatever, and have to make up a good story. Um, so I think that's a kind of direct incentivization. Apocalypse World does something else really interesting, where it builds into the basic mechanics and the metaphysics of the world this kind of player directed creation. So here's the best way I can put it. In Dungeons & Dragons, at least how a lot of the times we played it, um, and I think how the rule set encourages it, the DM ahead of time, say, makes a secret trap door. And when you're rolling near it, either the DM calls for you or you say, I'm going to look for you know a secret whatever, and you roll perception. And if you roll well, and if the DM had already decided there's a trap door there, you see the trap door that was already there. That makes sense? So like, the metaphysics is a cre- pre-created world, which to the player's look into a cop apocalypse world flips it so the way it works is um you like roll the equivalent of percept you roll you roll uh like your intelligence stat to uh, i think the move is called you know check a sitch or whatever like you 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 scan it and if you roll well you get some questions and the questions are really deeply loaded like one of the questions can be is something like you know what's this uh What's the best way out? And if you roll well and you ask for the best way out, the GM just has to make up one, right? It doesn't matter if they hadn't pre-planned it. You rolled well. You asked what's the best way out. I'm the GM. I got to make a way out. And this, because of the structure of the question, this lets the players guide the narrative in the direction they want. So like one of the characters, the brainer, has all these awesome like questions like so if they get contact with someone and they roll well they can ask questions like for what does your character crave forgiveness or what is your character's deepest darkest burning regret right so so what this means is you know i create some like harsh like warlord and i'm a ma- like i'm the gm say and i'm like imagining they'll fight maybe and of course this character like sneaks up and like you know gets a gets a hand on the warlord and asks this question like for what does your character crave forgiveness i'm the gm they rolled well i've got to make some shit up <laughs> so i make up you know the daughter that they you know spurned or whatever and now the character's like okay we're gonna find the daughter and we're gonna we're gonna get inside your soul so does it make, so the the players get to like 
force the world to develop in whatever direction they want um, by the use of these questions that bring parts of the world into being. And I, I just think like that player drivenness is so good and it forces this kind of like wild, rich, like bouncing around improvisation out of everybody. P.S. By the way, if people don't know, um, the quiet year can be used as a campaign starter. And right now, my group has used the quiet year to cre- collectively create the town that they started their Apocalypse World campaign in, which is an amazing addition to collective creativity. So I want to talk now about the future. So what's coming from you in the future and, and sort of what are you formulating to write about games? Right. Um, so right now I've been writing more and more about gamification. So the, the book, the first book I wrote was basically a love song about the glory of games that come from sculpting point systems. And the end of the book just spends a little bit of time talking about gamification. And I think most people in the space think if games are good, gamification is good. And I think if you understand why games are good, that they're temporary, that you have these simple, clear, hyper-designed point systems that you enter into and you explore this alternate uh, system of wanting things, and then you step back. What makes that good is that it's temporary, right? What makes that okay is that it's temporary. You have to explore all this different stuff. But in gamifications, I think what you're often doing is taking on really simplistic point systems for real-world activity and taking them on pervasively or permanently. Like Twitter is a hyper-simplified point system. It gives you part of the pleasure of a game because instead of like having to worry about the rich, weird plurality of whether you're connecting to people, you get a clear point system. But that point system is really simplified. It just measures popularity. It doesn't measure like depth of understanding or empathy or whatever. And so I think I'm I'm more and more worried about bad pervasive point systems in the world. And so what I've been researching a lot is uh, where our various institutional point systems come from. So I've been um, reading more about research metrics and the history of grade point averages and the history of human rights rankings. And I think in many of these cases, these are bad games that are sucking us in. And if you understand what's good about real good games, you'll understand why uh, things like grade point averages, when they capture our motivations, are actually destroying our souls. Well, it was fascinating when you were talking to Ezra Klein and you you were talking about this notion and the utility of these kind of point scoring systems is they're very translatable, right? It, 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 Ezra Klein gave this example of he got, you know, essays written about his performance and yet when he was applying to law school, it's, it's almost useless because it's not transferable from a, an arts background to a law background or whatever. I mean, do you see a positive in the gamification of society or is it, I mean, is it inherently negative? So this idea comes from, um, I think two places to find this idea is Theodore Porter's book, Trust in Numbers and James Scott's book, uh, Seeing Like a State. So one of the core ideas in Porter's book is that qualitative knowledge is really rich and subtle and nuanced and context sensitive, but doesn't travel well between different contexts. Qualitative knowledge is stripped down typically of context and nuance uh, to find some kind of invariant kernel that translates easily between people who are really different in context. So large scale institutions like universities and large corporations really prefer kind of these 
these simple metrics because they move across the institution easily. So there's obviously a plus side, and that plus side is institutions can't function without this. So insofar as you think large-scale, well-organized bureaucracies do something good in the world, you need those standards. What's bad about them is metrics like that cannot capture any kind of valuing that doesn't travel easily between contexts and isn't readily understood by people that don't share any background. So my real worry isn't, I don't think metrics are bad. My real worry is when we start to care about them. I mean, I think probably we'll never be able to get rid of GPA and it would be impossible for like the world to function without it. But I also think it would be better if people cared less about it and uh, cared more about the richer, harder to state values of education and thought and all that stuff. So you've written a lot about games. Have you ever aspired to create them yourself? Briefly, I'm terrible at it. I tried. <laughs> it's, I think the mindset's really different. I mean, I so I think, I mean, again, a lot of people think games are, I think one of the greatest relatives of game design is actually like urban planning, right? You're creating constraints for free agents to move around. And the mindset is very engineery. Like listening to Knizia and Werley talk about, I mean, so much of it is caring exactly about how the dice probabilities work and working with the mechanical guts. And I think, I mean, I think I love, I love games. I don't love tweaking that. I think the reason I can be a writer is that I don't just love communication. I love fussing with words, right? I love changing a comma or just slightly reordering the words to see how things feel. And I don't love playing with the math and the background of a game. And I think you do have to love that kind of engineeringness to be good at games. Um, so yeah, I, I've interestingly, um, despite my total lack of game design background or ability, uh, the game design students seem to be really liking our class. I mean, we really sell it as my co-teacher is a game designer and I'm like the critic philosopher. And so between between us, they can get something. And they, I think they really like having the aesthetic critic in the room, but I sure as hell cannot tell them how you tweak a point scoring system to get this effect. I can talk about why the effect is cool. Uh, Jose can talk about how you subtly tweak the math of the point scoring system to make it give a better more appropriate spread or whatever so your final game then is, is a bit of a cheat and it's two games it's the <laughs> 18xx 18xx system or imperial so so right. why lump these two together yeah this is i mean uh i mean 18xx itself is a whole game category but i think so i think this this is really starts as 18xx and imperial is really a, a to my mind, kind of a simplification of the 18xx hmm. system. So what they share is this kind of, um, there's a two-layered game. In 18xx, there are railway corporations that are expanding and building up their tech base and building and operating for money. So that's that could be a game in and of itself. But 18xx adds a second layer where you don't play the corporations, you play investors trading money around to uh to buy and sell stocks in those corporations you have to operate whichever corporation you're the majority holder in but you have to do all kinds of janky shit like you can 
take a corporation, make it look good, make it hollow at the core, have someone invest in it, drain all the money out of it in a clever way into your treasury, and then dump the corpse of that corporation <laughs> by selling off the stock on the secondary investor. Now they're stuck. Or, you know. So you can do these horrible things. I mean, it's possible in 18xx that to run every country and every company you own into the ground and pull a lot of money out of it. And Imperial has a similar structure where um, you don't play. There are the comp- the countries involved in World War One, but you don't play as the countries. You play as the investors changing stocks in the countries and manipulating the course of the world for war for profit. I mean, at some point in Imperial, Imperial is sufficiently cynical that it can make sense to have a fake war between two countries you own to wipe out the soldiers so you don't have to pay them to you don't have to pay them their payroll so you have more money in the treasury to drain for your personal funds. I mean it's it's completely cynical. The 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 deep similarity between them is the structure of the game makes it less about just the simple success of the first order like it's not just about the train corporations and it's not just about the countries. It's about looking at the structures of alliances and incentives based on who's invested in what and who's co-invested in what. I mean, I think truly understanding Imperial. So I think the moment I truly understood Imperial was when I realized, so I was heavily invested in England. Someone else was heavily invested in Germany. Germany was about to attack England. Then I realized, and some more England stock was coming up for bid. And I realized if I bought it, then the German player would attack me. But if I didn't bid and let the German player have it for cheap, then they would be co-invested in England and would have less incentive to attack England, right? And so when you start to add that second order layer on, the games just acquire this extraordinary complexity where you're constantly like not just thinking about what will be good for the corporation or the company, but what will how they're valuated, who who else is valuating them, how you can make them look more or less valuable than they actually are it's like and how you can like i don't know create these complex alliance structures to steer the course of the action the way you want it it's like these games are the most absorbing pure multiplayer games i know like they're the ones that approach the kind of just pure brutal intensity and gorgeousness of go for like just brain raw loveliness and so do you think the theory they're putting across that capitalism <laughs> is red in tooth and claw. Do you think that holds weight or do you think it's just gamified fancy? Uh, I think I'm not sure the world is exactly like that, but the world is probably significantly like that. And I will say that I use techniques. I learned from those games in committee meetings in the <laughs> university specifically i used my understanding i learned from those games about creating co-invested alliance structures to keep the business school from just pillaging the funds of the philosophy department um so you know it's enough that it's applicable to real world situations of you know <laughs> institutional <laughs> diplomacy so i've got one more question for you so you you're heading out of Utah towards the cabin. You, you go around a corner and the back door of the car flies open. Four of the games fly out down a ravine into a river right. and are swept away to posterity. Which game do you hope is sitting on the back seat of the car? 
Uh, is this a question about what I'll get to play in the cabin or what I want to save for posterity? Well, I will leave it up to you to decide on the criteria. Okay. Okay. Right now, in my soul of souls, if it's to save for posterity, it's Apocalypse World. That game is just an extraordinary achievement. I mean, they're all extraordinary, but that's that's probably because I've been playing it the most right now. Brilliant. So if people want to get hold of you, if they want to read your writing and see what you're up to, how can they go about doing that? Uh, my website is objectionable.net, where you can find links to every academic paper I've ever written for free online. Um, I am on Twitter as at ad hoc, A-D-D underscore H-A-W-K. Uh, you can follow me and mostly get weird academic reading recommendations. Fabulous. Well, C.T. Newman, thank you very much. You can support the show in many ways. You can tell your friends. You can talk about it on social media. You can talk about it in your own blog, podcast or video. You can support it directly by going to patreon.com forward slash 5 g for d for a rolling donation or for a one-off donation, hitting the PayPal link at the bottom of the website 5gamesfordoomsday.com. It's these donations that keep the show going. Also, if you want to say something nice about the show, or if you want to say something horrible about the show, you can contact me on Twitter at 5Games4Doomsday, or send me an email at 5Games4Doomsday at gmail.com. And if I've managed to sneak off from the flesh-eating carnivores and the ever more realistic reality, I'll see you in two weeks for another 5 Games for Doomsday. Doomsday.